Reality family. Welcome once again to the teaching for this week. My name is John, and I'm very grateful that you're spending some time with us today. The passage on which this teaching is based comes from Acts 1, verse 6 to 8. So please join me as I read that for us. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is God's word. We're in the middle of a series called What is the Church, where we look back at the New Testament to see if there's any kind of blueprint for what it means to be the church that we can take on ourselves today as we try to live out being God's people in Vancouver. And early on in the series, we looked at the book of Acts, and we saw that there is this pattern that, that uh, characterized the church in the book of Acts. So the first thing that they did was they are a group of people who committed to gathering together. And their gatherings had a couple different characteristics. The people were hospitable with one another. They valued each other over themselves, we over me. We didn't look at the passage, but there's also a lot of uh, in, in the book of Acts where they're caring for those who had less, for widows and orphans, caring for other people over and above themselves. They committed to being a group of spiritual practice, to prayers and to fasting and to other spiritual practices that helped to make them into the people of God. They committed to being a group of uh, learners who learn about the, it says, the disciples' teaching or the apostles' teaching and the whole scriptures to understand better who Jesus is and what his story is. And finally, they committed to being a group of people who wait and watch for the Holy Spirit at work in the community and at work outside. And oftentimes what they would do is be compelled to go and share this good news of Jesus beyond. And so that was the second movement that they would go out and they would preach the gospel and be a witnessing community to the world, an open and porous community. And as they would share this good news, some people would reject it. And this became a characteristic of their community, that they were people who were rejected and often suffered. But there are other people who would become curious about their teaching and their way of life. And then there was even another group of people who said, yeah, like I want in. I want to follow Jesus. And so they would take those folks and they would draw them back into their community and teach them this way. And this is the pattern that they would, they would gather together, learn to be the church, then be sent out. And for those who follow Jesus, they would gather them back into the community um, and, and encourage them to take on the rhythms of grace that they had. And as the church family grew more and more, they weren't trying to move into the center power structures of Rome and become a new Roman government, but they did become a threat to the Roman power structures. And as we read, uh, saw last week, it's because of how they kept time and what their relationship was to even suffering, that the, the government couldn't even make them suffer enough to make them stop and want to worship Caesar only as the Lord and Savior. Um, and so they, these people would suffer uh, and, and suffer for the gospel, and other folks would take notice. They became like a curious about this community, and so new people would join in. And so eventually this community is oppressed so much that they are forced to scatter into different places of the world. But they take the same rhythm on themselves, where they gather together in small groups. They go out, they preach, they share, they, their lives are different, they run by a different set of time, and new people are interested in joining their community. And it's all set off by this verse where Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. And then he talks about this kind of growing effect in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to even the ends of the earth. And there's this call to share the good news of the risen Jesus and to be different kinds of people in the world. 
And this idea that the first followers of Jesus and we uh, as his followers are to be witnesses is not limited just to this passage. It's all over Jesus' teaching and it's all over the New Testament. Let's just take a a look at a couple other verses so that you'll know uh, that I'm not just trying to extrapolate from this one single verse. Luke 24, at the end of Jesus' ministry when he has been resurrected, it says, He opened their minds to understand the scriptures, the disciples. And he also said to them, This is what is written. This is what the scriptures are about. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. That is their role, to be witnesses that the scriptures have been fulfilled. 1 Peter 3, we looked at this passage last week, a slightly different take on it. But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy. That when we suffer, because of taking on the name of Jesus, that we commit ourselves to putting Jesus at the center, that we are then to be ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who has, who asks you for a reason for the hope that you have. When we are open to suffering, when we move from comfort, expectation of comfort to expectation of suffering, when we put Jesus at the center and we make his invitation and his vision of the world to be the center of our lives, we'll live different lives and lives of hope. And people will ask us, for the reasons that the hope we have. Well, I have an opportunity to be his witnesses. It's just kind of baked into this idea here. Matthew 5, Jesus' teaching on the Sermon of the Mount, which we'll look at in a couple months when we looked at, at the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus says, You're the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand and gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So we're not supposed to, you know, like move out to Yarrow and and start a little commune or something like that, but actually to be in places where we can, although we're not trying to take power, that we can be a different kind of community, a time-keeping community as we talked about last week, a community of light because Jesus is at the center, that our light would shine into the world and into the lives of our neighbors and our friends, to be witnesses. Now, so this is all over the scripture, but now I I recognize when I talk about this as a characteristic of what it means to follow Jesus, that a lot of us have baggage with this word, either evangelism or mission or witnesses. And there could be lots of different kinds of baggage. You could have baggage of guilt where you're like, oh, as soon as we talk about this, I realize how little I actually want to share the good news of Jesus. Or it could be a baggage from like awkward evangelistic interactions that you've had um, or awkward evangelistic interactions that you've been made to do. Um, I've been part of those. I've done some really weird door-to-door things that uh, I still kind of have funny dreams about. Um, I remember once I was in a, a Starbucks in, in Texas and this guy came up to me and he's like, hey man, how are you doing? I, I haven't seen you in such a long time. And I was like, I don't think I've ever seen you before in my life. And he kind of went on and on like this for like three or four minutes. He's like, aren't you friends with so-and-so? And I, by the end of the three minutes, I was almost convinced, like I felt bad. I thought I knew this guy. And then at about three minutes, he just switched and he said, I'm just kidding, man. I don't know you at all, but you know, we're having this great revival at our church and I really think you should come and join. And I invite you to our youth group that's happening on Friday. And I was just so confused. Uh, it was one of the strangest evangelistic conversations I've been a part of. But maybe you have some of those things or you've participated in some of those things. And that's what you think of when you think of evangelism. And it just turns you right off of it. Or you could be thinking of all the objections that your really smart and, and wonderful friends and family have about following Jesus. 
or the, the terrible things that we hear about in the news that Christians are doing, or the residential schools, the baggage from our history that we have. And this is a great community group question for you. Like, what is the baggage that you pick up when you hear this word evangelism? What are all the things in your mind, all the barriers that you have to this idea and this word? And uh, I want to, let's be a community of honesty. Um, I'd encourage you to take some time to think about those and just share what they are. And we're going to address them in this series. Um, and I, I find, as, as Tim Keller says, he says that people often have really good reasons for not following Jesus, if you ask them. And I find the same thing, that people often have really good reasons not for wanting to engage in mission, if you ask them. Um, and in this series, we're going to wade through some of the baggage that we have with mission and sharing the gospel. Because if we're going to be the church, we can't just focus, although we, we are going to talk about the biblical commands and the blueprint of what it means to be Jesus followers, we have to also focus on these barriers and the baggage and the things that stop us from doing it. You know, I was listening to a podcast this week, and uh, it was, I don't often listen to Jordan Peterson, but he was on the podcast, and so love him or hate him, I know he's a polarizing figure. This is not about him. But he was talking about becoming sober, and he said something really interesting. He said, um, you know, al alcohol or, you know, the different drugs that he could get hooked on, they make you feel really great. So he said for him to become sober, he had to find something that he would love even more something he cared more about than drugs or alcohol to move him to sobriety. Um, it's a bigger vision of what it means to be human than just living for, say, happy hour. And it's the same thing, I think, with us. We all have barriers, things that stop us from engaging in the mission of God. We're, we're going to need a bigger picture, uh, something bigger to move us beyond our fears and beyond our comfort and through the baggage and barriers that we have. Um, and so for today, I'm going to ask you, I'm, I, I want you to talk about that in your community groups. What is some of the baggage? And I, I, we are going to talk about it uh, in the future in this series. But for now, I want you to just put that baggage down as we try to look at a bigger vision of what the mission in the Bible is. And with all good biblical stories, we're going to start this one in Genesis 1 with God himself. So in the Bible, we see that there is this God who stands outside of time before he even begins to create he is there in perfect united relationship with himself. And he wants to take this beautiful triune nature of this God, this self-giving love that characterizes the nature of God, and he wants to extend it into the world, extend it beyond himself. And this is how God approaches creation with this mission in mind, to extend, as we call this word, shalom. Um, one author uh, says shalom is characterized by relationships that are multidimensionally and comprehensively right. Shalom is characterized by relationships that are multidimensionally and comprehensively right. And I want to think, you to think about this in, in, as these relationships in four different ways. The first is our relationship with God, that he wants us to be a full flourishing relationship where we actually come into this self-giving love of the triune God. He invites us into this as his people. So that's the first relationship, us with God. The second relationship is us with ourselves, that we actually then in that relationship with the loving God know who we are. How many of us have asked that question, who, who am I? What is my place in the world? Kind of a more existential question, that we would find our answer to that in, in a multidimensional relationship with God. The third relationship is then the relationship with each other, the relationships that we have with each other, that these are all to be characterized by the same self-giving, love that we see within Jesus. 
And then the fourth is our relationship with the cosmos, or we could say the environment or the creation at large. That this is also to be characterized by our relationship with God. And so these four relationships, our relationship with God, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with each other, and our relationship with the world are all to be in this perfect orbit, just as God is in this perfect orbit of three in one. And so God creates with this intentionality and purpose to create a world where all of those relationships are in perfect dynamics. And he creates again with this purpose, with a mission, where we see him in Genesis 1 thinking, deciding, planning, proposing, speaking, and then resting. His goal, he's, he's on a mission, and his goal is actually to dwell with us, to be in the center so that we can be in perfect relationship with him and all of the other relationships revolve around that. And these are all the characteristics that will describe this God for the rest of the story, that he is a God who continues to give himself to expand the circle of shalom. I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of God, but this is what Genesis 1 describes our God as. And so the mission, therefore, is God's mission. And it's just key to who he is. This is who he is. He's a God of the self-giving love of mission. And he's always working to extend his being further and further into the universe. Karl Barth says it this way, the mission of God is an expression of the doctrine of the Trinity, not something that we just need to go and do. Namely, it's an expression of the divine sending forth of the self of God, the sending of the Son, as we'll see later, and the sending of the Holy Spirit, as we saw in Acts 1. That our God is a God who's always sacrificially extended himself for the sake of the world. This is what the love of God means. It's, it's very intertwined with the mission of God. And so if this is true that the mission starts with God, then it means it doesn't start with you or me. Whenever you feel uh, you're thinking about a friend, the mission of God doesn't start there, that you have to go and talk to that friend. The mission of God starts a long, long time ago with God himself. And this is really important because anything he asks us to do, anything he invites us into, he's done already for us. He's been doing since the beginning of eternity. Anything he calls us to be, to turn into, to become more like Jesus, he already is. He already is those things and has been since the beginning of time. And I don't know about you, but mission for me can often feel like this thing, like I said, that I need to start. It's not happening, so I need to do it. You know, there's not enough of God's mission in the world, so I need to get started. And I have to kind of like encourage God to come along with me. It's like, okay, here I'm going to pray for this group of people. Like, come on, God. My prayers are almost like, hey, I'm going over there. Would you please join me in doing that? And so I have to not only drum up excitement for it in myself and the courage to do it, um, but I also have to get God to come along. And biblically, if that's the way I'm thinking about it, I've already got it all wrong. Because we see on page one, chapter one, that God is the God of mission because he's the God of self-giving, loving community. And he wants to extend that into that world. And that's the way it's been before the beginning of time. It doesn't start with you and me. It starts with God and his character. So Genesis 1, God is creating this beautiful world. Now, how's he going to extend himself into the world? How does he actually go about it? Well, he creates little images of himself. And we are, as N.T. Wright says, angled mirrors of this God in the world. So that's the fundamental human job. You can think of it this way. If God is here, we are made to reflect and refract him into the world with our mirrors individually and communities as a church. And that's why it's so fundamentally important to be in a right relationship with God. Because he is God and we are the mirrors. That's who we are. And so our ability to function as human beings and participate into the life 
that we were made for is dependent on which way our mirror is pointed. When it's pointed at God, we receive his glory and we shine it out into the world. And we create with him into creation. We extend shalom through eco ecological stewardship, taking care of the world, economic stewardship, taking care of money and systems of power, through cultural stewardship in what we create in beauty and the arts, and also in social stewardship in our relationships. But if we angle our mirrors towards something else or someone else other than God, we, we don't stop being creators. We are creators. Uh, that's just who we are. We are meant to reflect something and we're going to reflect it and create into the world. But instead of reflecting the God of the universe, the God of glory and light, as the Bible says, we'll end up reflecting something totally different, like darkness. And this will lead to the opposite, ecological degradation or broken systems of economics or language and art and cultures that hurt rather than heal and social brokenness due to our uh, fear and anxiety and political fighting and tribalism. See, the nature of who we are doesn't change. We're angled mirrors no matter what. We're going to reflect something or other. And you don't have to just take this from the Bible. One of my favorite authors, David Foster Wallace, who is not a Christian, uh, gave this amazing commencement speech at Kenyon College called This is Water. Listen to what he says. I've quoted it before, but I've just not heard anyone say it any better. He says this, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. Everybody is an angled mirror. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, and you'll feel weak and afraid, and you'll need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. I think he writes that one specifically to Enneagram Fives, and so on. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they are unconscious. They're default settings. They're the kinds of worship that you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that's what you're doing. And the world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the world of men and money and power hums along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and craving and the worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in a way that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom to be lords of our own tiny skull-sized kingdoms alone at the center of all creation. Remember, he's not a follower of Jesus, but he's saying the same thing. The ultimate human choice is who are you gonna reflect? Are you going to reflect something other than God and live for a tiny skull-sized kingdom? Are you going to angle your mirror at created things? Or are you going to choose to participate with God in the world, in his mission of extending shalom? And here's the really interesting thing about this God who, like I said, exists before time, this self-giving God of the triune love, is that he doesn't coerce us 
as his mirrors, as his images, into joining with him on his mission in the world. He gives us the dignity of choice. That's what he does with the first people in this first story of the Bible. And what do they choose? Well, they choose to angle their mirror towards something else. They choose to try to write their own story and to be on their own mission. To think, hey, maybe there's, you know, there's this God, but maybe there's a better mission out there for me somewhere else. And of course, the outcomes are disastrous. It's the breaking down that we see in after Genesis 3 of just the total unraveling of all these different relationships. We see the breakdown of the relationship with God as they're kicked out of the garden, the breakdown of the relationship with themselves, the breakdown of the relationships with others. We see murder after murder happening and the breakdown of even the environment as they're kicked out into the desert. It's just this total breakdown of relationships. And so that's the story if we choose to angle our mirror away. But the really good news is that God doesn't give up on his mission of creating shalom in the world. And why is that? It's because that's not who he is. He is a God who is committed to us and to our world. And he is faithful. And he's just a God. Like I said, it's in his very character in his, his, of who he is that he would be a God who just continues to try to extend shalom in his world. To seeing his kingdom of shalom come to earth, to committed to seeing earth, uh, heaven come on earth. And so he looks at the creation that's been marred by sin and he mourns over it. We see this happen several times throughout the Old Testament. But he commits himself to bringing a new creation as we see in Isaiah and in Galatians. And we see God's mission to make everything new as he says in Colossians and Revelations and to the restoration of all these new relationships. He gives this beautiful picture in Ezekiel of a valley of dry bones and he says, I'm going to create hearts of flesh, hearts, people uh, that are alive out of people who are dead, to restore us to who we were. Human beings who are right with ourselves and right with God, reconciled to our bitter, most bitter enemies, as it says in Isaiah, and the whole creation restored to a place where justice is at home, as he says in 2 Peter 3. Theologians call this a missio dei, the mission of God, that he's committed to rescuing the world from sin and restoring all of the relationships that we were created for. And this is what God sets about doing in the rest of the Old Testament. Our missional God chooses another group of people, the group, uh, the people of Israel, and he says, I'm coming to dwell among you. I am resting with you, and I give you my name to carry. Even though you're a small, marginalized people, I am with you. This is missional election. Maybe something we, uh, we haven't talked about that much in our church recently, but there's this idea. We even saw it in 1 Peter that we are elected people to be missional. God chooses a small group of people to make himself known through. And then he gives them this vision of how they can live in step with him. He says, you're going to look different than the nations around you. This is missional ethics. And he calls them to serve him and serve the world. And he says, you are blessed. The goal or the reason that I'm with you and blessing you is to be a blessing. You've received my grace and my salvation so that in order that you would offer it to the rest of the world. This is missional servanthood. And then he gives them a vision. He says, all nations will come to Jerusalem and meet me there. And the lion will, the lion will sleep with the lamb and all of these different beautiful pictures of peace. This is missional eschatology, a view of what the future could be. But the people of Israel choose again and again to walk away from God and his, his mission, to angle their mirrors somewhere else. But again, God is even undeterred by that. Although he gets angry and he mourns and he exiles them, he is ultimately a missional God who wants to work with and through his images to bless the world. This is just who he is and his very nature and his very core. 
And so this is where Jesus comes into the story at the climax. The missional God actually sends himself. This is the depth to which God is committed to partnering with human beings in his mission. So God becomes a human. He becomes an image. And he takes up residence among us, as it says in the Gospel of John. He's the very image of the invisible God, as it says in Colossians. And he shows us how we are to live. And in his death and resurrection, he also shows what it is to bless the world through suffering and serving. That's the story of Jesus. So, to our passage in Acts 1. The disciples come and they ask a really, really good question. Hey, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel to the kingdom to Israel at this time? You know, are you going to do what we've been expecting you to do all along with Jesus? We've been hanging out with you all this time. Are you going to make our national dreams come true? Because that would be really good news for us. That would actually be something to celebrate and get excited about and tell other people about. And questions are great. Jesus is actually never opposed to questions and he asks a whole ton of them in the scripture. And we're going to take some time in this series to look at some of the questions that we have about evangelism. But here's what Jesus says to the disciples, really good question. He says, hey, good question. He's not at all angry, but he says, it's not for you to know. That's not the most important thing for you to know at this time. But he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He's repeating the same storyline and the same promise of who he is and how he acts in the world. He says, I'll dwell with you once again. My spirit is coming. And as we saw at Pentecost, his spirit comes and rests on these first followers of Jesus. And the people who have the spirit form this new community, a new family, the new Israel. He says, you will be my witnesses into the world to who I am to how I've always been as we've seen in the story of God, to what I've done in Jesus, and to what I will do in your new family of believers, and to what I'm going to do into the world. That's why it's so important that we learn to watch and wait for how the Spirit is at work. We're always called to be witnesses, but we're to watch and wait for how God wants us to act into the world. And then we'll be witnesses for him to the ends of the earth. It's the same pattern that God chooses us as his people, this is missional election. As First Peter says, he writes his, uh, his letter to the elect that are scattered around the world. To those people that God has chosen for his missional purposes. And he gives us a vision of how, they, how we can live in step with him. God puts his spirit in us and our job is, is to make ourselves into a suitable home for God's spirit. To welcome him and to allow him to make us more and more into the person of Jesus to be a timekeeping community that goes along with the story and the timing of God. This is missional ethics. And it calls us to serve him and to serve the world, a people who reflect our God through suffering. As Peter says, as strangers and exiled in this world, that we are people who are cross-eyed. We serve the world in this moment that we're even willing to suffer because we have this great future hope that we look towards. And he gives us a vision. In Peter, it says it this way, that people will observe our good works and glorify God on the day he visits. Missional eschatology, that there is a renewal of all things. There is this great hope that is coming in the person of Jesus when he will come once again and we'll get to feast with him as we talked about last week, but also we'll get to be with him and work with him together for the renewal of all things. This is who God has always been and what God has always been on about and what he invites us into as his partners. 
And so I know all of us have different fears and baggage when it comes to evangelism. And the rest of the series will talk maybe like more practically about the moment that we live in, why we have some of these fears and, and baggage that we do and what we can do about it, how we might actually be able to be witnesses and share the gospel into the world. But I wanted to start here with the story, this vision of this God who is bigger than our fears. Not to dismiss them, but to try to give us a bigger vision to help us through the different barriers that we face. An eternal story of an eternal God who longs to partner with us to extend shalom into the world. So for this week, I just invite you as we respond, whatever you're going to be doing after you watch this video or listen to this podcast, just to take some time. Are you open to this God? And are you open to being a part of this story, whatever that might look like? Would you join me as we pray to close? God, thank you that you are this kind of God. I confess in my heart that um, there are definitely times where I see you very differently. And, uh, and I see myself getting out ahead of you in the mission. But this call to, to be your witnesses is for me to go somewhere and to do something and invite you to come along. I thank you that instead this passage and, and your story reminds us that you are a God who is always, this is the character of who you are, that you are longing to just um, expose your self-giving love who you are to the world. So give us eyes to see you as that God. I pray that we would take that deep into our, not only lives individually, but as a community. Give us eyes to see the beauty of the story of your mission, that you call us to participate in it. And then also give us, start to give us eyes to see where you might be at work in our community, but also beyond our, uh, our gathering together, um, but that you're where you're at work in the world, that we might join you to share the good news of Jesus and be your witnesses. Pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.